This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Saeed Jones, author of the poetry collection Prelude to Bruise, which was a finalist for a National Book Critics Circle Award, one of NPR's Best Books of 2014, and the winner of the 2015 Penn Literary Award for Poetry. Jones is also the literary editor for BuzzFeed. He grew up in Texas, and his poetry explores themes of race, sexuality, power, violence, mythology, and intimacy. Prelude to Bruise is separated into six sections, where much of the poetry contains a narrative arc telling the story of Boy, a black homosexual living in the South who lost his mother and is at odds with his homophobic father. We began the interview discussing how Jones got into writing. I started writing poetry, I think, the way most people do, which is I was um, a teenager with a lot of feelings. (laughs) Um, And I just, you know, I kept a notebook and um, I started really writing when I was... um, in like 12 or 13. And um, I just like kind of kept a notebook to myself and it wasn't always necessarily poems. Sometimes it would be more like dramatic monologues. Um, I was always really interested in persona. I liked writing in the voices of, of um, figures, almost always women actually from Greek mythology. And I just kept with it, but it was always very private. I didn't share my work very often and kind of, it kind of just was something that I did on my own. And then um, in college, I went to a few poetry slams and um, would compete. And so I kind of had to drag out the poems again. And um, I was like, okay, um, but not especially great. So I started taking writing workshops at the college I was studying at Western Kentucky University. And um, the, the workshop experience really opened me up. I, I, one, I didn't know that it was like actually possible for people to seriously focus on poetry. I, I you know, I grew up in um, a very working class family. And so, you know, your job was about income. It was about about putting, you know, food on the table and keeping a roof over your head. And so I just never, so the idea of like really intensely focusing on poetry, which is an intense focus on art, um, you know, until then seemed very unrealistic. But all of a sudden I was in, you know, in a workshop with a wonderful um, professor, Tom Hundley, and, um, and and then, you know, I just kind of stuck with it. I ended up changing my major. And, you know, then he started telling me about graduate programs. It was just like this whole world opened up to me. And um, I was fortunate enough, I, I think, that along the way, mentors started um, kind of coming into my life and basically just telling me to keep going uh, because I don't I, I don't think I would have thought to keep walking. I don't think I realized I was on a path <laughs> um, until maybe I was in graduate school. Um, so, you know, kind of it took a lot of help, a lot of support. So I want to talk about your work, Prelude to Bruise, before we talk about specific poems. But I wrote down just a list of okay. things that I felt kept recurring through these poems, whether they were an image or an, an idea tongues, fathers, fathers with difficult relationships with their sons, locked rooms, dresses, water, fields, gay identity, but also gay secrecy, fire, flames, and burning, a boy who 
seem to come out early and violence. So that was a list of things I noticed. And I'm just wondering if you want to, I know it's a long list, but if you want to comment on any of that or if there's stuff I missed or just talk about the nature of some of those things. Prelude to Bruce is a very elemental book. Um, and so fire and water and the natural environment um, are pretty important symbols in part because I felt, you know, since I was grounding this um, this narrative in in the American South and in that particular cultural landscape, it was clear that the Bible and its stories and images would be uh, an important text for the voices. Uh, it would be something that, you know, would uh, influence the kind of images that they would call to mind, um, you know, and so you, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah is referenced or Isaac and Abraham. Um, and obviously there's a, there's a lot of fire and, and, and water, both as um, an, an image of, of purity, of fluidity, of gender fluidity, um, of, of motherhood. In, in Toni Morrison's noble address, at one point she mentioned um, what it is to live at the edge of towns that cannot bear your company. And um, I've been working on the book or the poems in the book for about two or three years um, because I really just focused on just writing poems more so than trying to write a book initially. But as a narrative started trying to kind of to come into focus, um, I thought about that phrase that's at the edge of the town. And I had this image of a father and um, his son um, who live in, you know, a cabin just at the edge of town, which for me was both kind of where the intersection of, of magical realism happens, which happens throughout the book, um, where, you know, it's one foot on the ground and, and one foot, you know, in, in kind of the air of possibility. And, um, and I had this idea that the mother was gone, either she had run away or she had passed away, but it was a very raw grief for the father and son. And so as the, as the boy begins to, you know, um, go through the house and, and, and find, um, you know, his mother's beautiful evening gowns that she left behind and he tries them on part because he's exploring um, his own sexuality and identity and partially because he misses his mother. And this is a way of, of engaging um, his grief. Um, I figured that it would trigger his father's own grief. Um, and, and in my experience, grief often kind of lights up a lot of different emotions depending on someone's life. And so in the case of this narrative, um, you know, his rage and, and his fear comes out. And so that kind of created a narrative, um, a narrative engine, if you will, that really kind of drove um, the rest of the experience of working on the book. And so, you know, th those images that you were kind of alluding to, the fire, the water, um, fathers and, and difficult sons um, and, and sexuality and, and secrecy or forced secrecy um, all kind of come out of that idea. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Saeed Jones, author of the poetry collection Prelude to Bruise. When you blend the emotional truths of your life with this fictional narrative to create your poetry, what is that process like? Is that a conscious process? You were saying that this book took you two years, but I think for someone who doesn't know poetry and they just look at a page and it has like 10 lines and they're like, what? So the book actually took five to six years. Um, it was just that it, was, it took two years before Boy um, even showed up in, in the way that the narrative did. Uh, because I started out just writing, you know, one poem at a time and then it kind of started to coalesce. I think when I'm, when I'm writing a poem, I'm very, very focused on the line itself. 
Um, and so for me, it's all about writing one line at a time. And, and I don't want to move on to even the next line or stanza until I feel like I've gotten to where I, I need to be. So for me, it's a very almost kind of microscopic writing process that I really enjoy. I know that might sound a bit painstaking, but um, for me, that's the pleasure that I get to think about language and image, um, you know, much more intensely than we would, you know, in, in, co- in regular conversation or storytelling. But I think what happens is that anything you write, even if you're writing in a very focused, microscopic level, like I was describing, um, all of your work has to pass through the lens of your life. And, and, you know, and so, you know, all of your obsessions and your preoccupations, whatever you're reading, you know, if you if you've gone to the museum recently, you know, uh, the weather, the music, all of these things, um, I think, kind of trickle in. And and so in many ways, um, I feel that I've been writing this book my entire life. Um, when I look at it, I see, you know, the fruition of of different memories and experiences of relationships of, of artistic appreciation um, that then begin to kind of guide the emotions that I was examining while I worked on the book. Um, so for me, um, it's once, once I kind of accepted the freedom of, I don't need to worry about um, the facts in this poem, as long as I can pursue the truth, then um, I found that, uh, things kind of clicked into place um, over time. But it, it, it took a while to, to get to the point to feel comfortable just doing that. There's a line in your poem, Last Call, that says, I've got more hunger than my body can hold. And I'm wondering if you walk around feeling like that. I think we all do. I think, you know, for me, that's a very, um, it strikes me as a very American feeling, <laughs> right? That, you know, the more, more hunger, more ambition. I want more than, than the life I've been given um, seems to have room for. Um, I think that's a, a really, um, it's not necessarily a great idea, but I think it's an influential idea <laughs> um, in our culture. And so for me, I, I, I do think about that. I think we all often feel we want or aspire to more that perhaps, um, you know, the actual, the metaphorical body that we're living within, you know, we're held back, you know, either because of um, oppression or, or circumstances or, or the consequences of other decisions we've made ourselves, you know. Um, and so throughout the book, I mean, that kind of in some ways sums up boy, right? He's this very... Um, he wants. He has an ambitious um, drive to live, um, and and actually, what he wants is very simple. He he wants to live as who he is, and he wants to be able to love um, freely. Um, so, in some ways, that is actually incredibly humble. Um, but because of the the cultural context he exists in, um, because he you know he he's young, um, he's isolated. Um, friendship and mentorship is not a part of his life um, because of homophobia and racism. His very simple aspiration is perhaps more than his body can hold. It's, it's dangerous. Um, and so we see it actually become a matter of peril over the course of the book. Can we talk about the first poem, Anthracite? Of course. Of course. Can you read it? Sure. And um, I'll say that anthracite is a type of cold anthracite. A voice mistook for stone, 
jagged black fist thrown, miles through space through doors of dark matter. Heard you crack open the field skull where you landed. Halo of smoke ruined the sky, and you were a body now, naked and bruised in the cratered cotton. Could have been a meteorite except for those strip-mined eyes, each a point of fossilized night. Bringing water and a blanket, I asked, which of your lives is this, third or fifth? Your answer, blues. A breeze to soak my clothes in tears. With my palm pressed to your lips, hush. When they hear you, they will want you. Beware of how they want you. In this town, everything born black also burns. So for me, as the opening of this book... I read it many times, and I wrote down, you know, at first it sort of reminded me of God coming down to earth and becoming incarnate. It had undertones for me of slavery, of um, a boy's birth, uh, the ruin of being a carnate person, sex, and pain. And that's sort of what I read into it. But can you tell me more about your intention and, and what you were thinking? Absolutely. So ironic, you know, of course, just after I said you about grounding the book's opening in narrative, we op- it actually opens with a lyric poem. Uh, but I-, I chose Anthracite as, as the book's frontis, as the actual prelude to the collection itself, because it appears actually right before the first section, um, because it, it introduces a lot of important images, um, all of which you um, so expertly identified, um, and kind of sets um, an important tone, which is this sense of peril. Um, we have this this figure in which kind of in the poem to me, it's a bit of like a this kind of mythic, you know, origin story, if you will. Um, and, and you have this this man who arrives in and because of the allusion to the cotton field, um, you know, lands in the southern terrain, um, in my mind, and um, in the midst of slavery, or perhaps more accurately, the, the legacy of slavery, and is already in danger, right? We have this figure who comes to help him and, and with water and a blanket, um, and is kind of already warning him that that because precisely because you are who you are, you're already in, dangerous, uh, in danger. And in fact, the more people will learn about you, perhaps um, the more in danger you are. And and so for me, I mean, that's um, haunting and, and disturbing. And I think, you know, when I was growing up, something that I really had to grapple with um, was um, my family members trying to warn me um, and protect me from racism. Um, and so often I would, you know, I wouldn't get, you know, a coda that was quite so um, abstract, but, you know, family members would always say, like, be careful and you should do this and you have to think about this. And, you know, if you ever see a police officer, if ever, you know, and, and I was always I've, I've always been um, kind of um, stubbornly optimistic. Um, and so when I was younger, I just really couldn't understand. I thought everyone was just being paranoid. I thought my, you know, especially, you know, my grandmother and my mother, I thought they were just being paranoid in their concern for me. Um, but as I grew up, um, and, you know, began to step out into the world more myself, I developed an understanding of where they were coming from, that things were changing, 
um, and things are still changing, but obviously um, racism, homophobia, hate, sadly, are still realities for far too many of us. And so that was the peril um, my family was trying um, to help me understand. And um, so, you know, because this is a book where um, we see young people often, and in this case, um, boys, kind of really boldly just running out into the world, um, I thought it was important to open with that understanding. In these poems, there's also a lot of fear and pain and real true threats to boys' sexuality. And I know you experienced a horrific incident where you were beat up, nearly killed for being gay. Do you want to talk about that at all? Sure. Uh, It's actually the subject of the next book I'm working on, which will be a memoir. Um, I've been working on it for a couple of years, and um, I think... as I have more time to write, <laughs> hopefully in the next few months, I'll um, be diving into it again. But um, in college, um, I went to a New Year's Eve party and, and met a guy um, and went home with him. Um, and we uh, started making love. And uh, he had an, I, what I can only describe as an actual crisis of masculinity. Um, and he tried to kill me. Um, he panicked. And I fortunately was able to get away, um, you know, mostly unharmed. And I've spent the years since that incident um, thinking about the ways in which our understanding of what it means to be a man is tied up with violence, with racism and homophobia, is is sexism. Because really, at, at, at its root, that's what homophobia is, right? It's sexism. So... Um, and that's, I feel, an important idea. And so, um, you know, obviously those themes appear throughout the book in, in the sense of you see Boy trying to figure out his life, and he's obviously doing it alongside the other men in his life, um, often with uh, clashes and sparks and brutal consequences. Um, but, but I'm working on a book in which I'm able to focus actually more directly on my life um, and, and connect um, different themes, because I think the the idea of American masculinity is very complicated and um, really important for us to engage, because obviously, whether we like it or not, we are all engaging the idea of American manhood in various ways. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Saeed Jones, author of the poetry collection Prelude to Bruise. Well, can you read a passage from a writer that influenced you? Of course, of course. So Toni Morrison is a writer whose work changed my life, saved my life, has, has reintroduced me to my life many times. Um, my mom had several of her books um, in in the house, and I started reading um, Toni Morrison's work when I was Twelve or thirteen, <laughs> um, and I should say, well before I actually understood much of it. But as a result, she's a, a writer who I've grown up with, and so I wanted to read this one part of her Nobel address. You old woman, blessed with blindness, can speak the language that tells us what only language can: how to see without pictures. Language alone protects us from the scariness of things with no names. Language alone is meditation. Tell us what it is to be a woman, 
so that we may know what it is to be a man. What moves at the margin? What it is to have no home in this place, to be set adrift from the one you knew. What it is to live at the edge of towns that cannot bear your company. And and she goes on from there. Um, but I just found that moment in her address so evocative. And, and this, you know, and, and obviously, you know, if you want to go to the legacy of slavery, um, in which, um, you know, millions of people were set adrift from the home they knew, or if you want to, you know, take it to the individual experience of perhaps feeling that we don't, we haven't quite found our personal home in this world. Can you read something that you wrote? It could be something that you found really difficult, that went through many drafts, or just something you succeeded at. That is a great question. Yes. I'll read um, one of the poems I wrote about my mother after her passing. It's a a very lyric poem, um, in, in part because I think for a time, grief kind of took away a sense of narrative, which is to say the trust of the beginning, middle, and end. Uh, Grief just kind of eschews our relationship to past, present, and future, and everything kind of is blurred. And so this is a poem about the the attempt to grapple with that and, and how difficult it is. Mercy. Her ghost slips into the room wearing nothing but the memory of a song. Then, as a note lost in a little girl's throat, mercy. If fog had a sound, if the moon decided to hold its breath, if she ever heard the way I cry out in my sleep, mercy. She knows I'm not well, sees the dark circling my eyes, one more inheritance, mercy. Her stare traces me, and a hand reaches out, but, Mama, I don't know the words. Was that something that had to go through a lot to get there? Yes, it it was a poem that, um, once I sat down to write it, once I decided to actually write exactly about how I felt, I won't say easy, but it was, you know, it began to flow, but it took a very long time to feel comfortable directly addressing um, my mother, the memory of my mother, and my grief. Um, Because, as I've mentioned, uh, you know, for me, blurring um, my my own life and and, and myth and fiction is... um, how I prefer to write. It's also, I think, in some ways, it gives me a shield, a kind of comfort. And um, grief kind of strips away all of those veils. And um, and I really wanted to, as best I could, write a poem um, to, to speak to that moment in my life, which was really the, the unspeakable. I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. Um, and so I remember thinking of the phrase, if if fog had a sound, um, and that to me just really um, evoked what grief felt like at the time. So for me, the, the hardest part was making it to the page um, because it meant kind of staring down uh, an incredible foe. Um, grief, grief really knocked me flat. Where do you write? 
it changes <laughs> depending on the circumstances of my life. Um, I prefer to write at home at my desk. Um, I prefer for it to be quiet. Uh, you know, I like to light some candles. I like to be near a window. Um, but that is a luxury. Um, Often I'm writing, you know, in the office late, late in the evening. Sometimes I'll just stay until everyone else has gone home and I'm just at my desk. And and I take a lot of notes and, and the act of taking notes is something I'm just doing kind of constantly about my day and whenever I get a chance to jot something down. Um, but I feel um, I'm at my best if it's very, very quiet, perhaps early in the morning um, and I've Wake, woken up to to write, and that's all I need to do for a couple of hours. Um, that that's what I prefer to write. <laughs> and what do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing? That's a good question. Um, I love to travel um, because I'm because I'm an editor um, full time. Um, you know, writing and language is just kind of a it's inseparable from my life in some ways, um, and so I think. Uh, the only way I'm able to really fully step away from writing and thinking about writing is travel, either because I'm on an airplane and I don't have access to the internet or I turn my phone off, or because, you know, I like to go to some remote location and, and really just kind of take a break from the world, um, because I think that isolation is actually really great for writing. Um, but you you need to be away. You need to have time to just kind of sit with yourself, um, which is difficult to do, I think, in, in 21st century life. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Not many people. I, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, that's actually something that's really difficult for me. Um, I'm a perfectionist and panic at the thought of showing my work to people before I feel like it's good enough. But um, I do have some close friends who um, have become, you know, really great readers of my work. And um, I think I feel as safe with them as they feel as comfortable, you know, giving me honest feedback. Because, you know, often often what writers need um, is someone to just tell them to keep going. <laughs> Sometimes that, that's the best advice. But um, if you're really lucky, you can, you can find, you know, a few friends who can also tell you, you know, the truth and, and um, some um, wise but tough advice that's necessary too. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, God. It's, not, it's never personal. That's something I always try to remember, you know. Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, getting work published in literary journals is a real lesson in rejection, something that perhaps poets have to deal with more than, than uh, prose writers because, you know, we're, we're submitting work more frequently, I think. And often, I think, when you are rejected, especially from, you know, a, a really fancy literary journal or something you really want um, or some, you know, some publisher, in some ways, I think it's a way of the world protecting you or that's how I try to think of it, you know, often your work isn't ready when you think it's ready. And really the worst thing for a writer is for work that is not ready to be published, to be out in the world, because you can't take it back. And what is your favorite word? I find I use the word listen <laughs> in, in conversation very much I, uh, as a bit of a, um, uh, a punctuation mark. So I, I use listen as like a comma. 
<laughs> so when someone's saying something really interesting or I agree with them and I'm trying to like emphasize, just like listen, and then I keep going. Um, but of course, I also like, you know, the, the, the values of emphasizing the word listen. And I personally am someone who's always running around, often distracted, always worried about next and, and thinking too far ahead. And for me, um, when I think about the word listen, it also requires me to slow down and stop for a moment and really root myself in the moment, um, which is something I absolutely need to do more. You've been listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Saeed Jones, author of the poetry collection Prelude to Bruise. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Saeed Jones, author of the poetry collection Prelude to Bruise. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.